This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. In 1930, Pluto was discovered by Clyde Tombaugh. He became the first American ever to discover a planet, and it remained one until 2006, when it was unceremoniously demoted by the IAU, by the International Astronomical Union. But was this a bad decision, and is this the final word on the topic? Let's dive into both the history and the science in order to understand. Since antiquity, the solar system consisted only of six planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, our own, and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, and that's it. Why? Because they're the only planets visible to the naked eye. It wasn't until the development of the telescope in the 17th century that we would even become capable of first seeing it of seeing another planet beyond those six. That didn't happen definitively until 1781, where William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus. It was pure serendipity. He just happened to be looking with his big telescope at a region of the sky where Uranus was passing through. And he didn't name it Uranus, he named it Georgium Sidus after George, then the King of England. Why would you name a planet after the King of England instead of in line with the other Roman god-named planets? Because the Roman gods aren't going to fund you and give you a grant. So they gave him a grant and he built with it the world's largest telescope at the time. After thousands of years, we finally had a seventh planet. Surprisingly, it only took 20 years to get another planet in the solar system. In 1801, Italian astronomer Giuseppe Piazzi discovered an in-between planet, one that was after Mars but before Jupiter, Ceres. And what he wrote was, I have announced this star as a comet, but since it is not accompanied by any nebulosity, and further, since its movement is so slow and rather uniform, it has occurred to me several times that it might be something better than a comet. But I have been careful not to advance this supposition to the public. In other words, he was really hopeful, but only internally, that he had found a new planet. And for a short amount of time, Ceres was classified as a planet. But Piazzi's glory was short-lived. The very next year, another planet-like body between Mars and Jupiter was discovered. And within less than 50 years, astronomers had found a full 10 objects in between Mars and Jupiter. Even worse, they were all diminutive, even when compared with our moon we realized that these weren't planets like the others, but that there was a whole belt of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter. And even the largest among them, Ceres, was much more like these small, rocky objects than it was like any of the actual planets. So by the mid-19th century, 
Ceres and all the other asteroids were stripped of their planetary status, demoted to asteroids which accurately described what they were. However, in the outer solar system, something funny was brewing with that outermost planet with Uranus. You see, Kepler's laws had been known for almost 200, actually 250 years by this point. And so one of the things it told us based on Newton's gravity is how quickly planets should be moving if we knew their orbital parameters. The thing is, when we first started viewing Uranus, it seemed to be moving too quickly. For about 20 years, Uranus moved faster than Kepler's laws predicted. Then over the next 20 years or so, it seemed to move right at the predicted speed. And finally, for the next 20 or so years, it started to move too slowly. What would cause that? Well, possibly Kepler's laws and by association Newton's laws were wrong, but it was also possible that there was additional outer world beyond Neptune that was tugging on it, that was causing it to advance, advance when Uranus approached this outer world, that it moved at the predicted speed when Uranus and this outer world lined up, and that when Uranus passed this outer world, because it was inner and moved faster, the outer world tugged backwards on it, causing it to move slower. That would be the planet Neptune. In 1846, Urbain Le Verrier made a prediction of exactly where Neptune would have to be. He wrote a letter to Johann Gall of the Berlin Observatory, and on the night Gall received the letter, he looked right where Le Verrier had predicted. Within one degree of Le Verrier's prediction, there lied an undiscovered bright point of light where no known star existed. They had just discovered Neptune, the solar system's true eighth planet. Over time, observations of Neptune indicated that there must be an additional tug present. It wasn't matching up either. So you start to wonder, could there be a planet beyond Neptune as well? Well, in 1930, when Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto, it was thought that that was it. Initially, it was thought that Pluto also was a giant world. It was thought to be at least bigger than Earth. But better observations over the coming years and decades, including from stellar occultations where Pluto passed in front of a star, and from better measurements of Neptune, showed that Pluto was not only smaller than Earth, it was smaller than all of the other planets, even smaller than Mercury. Meanwhile, Neptune's orbital problem appeared to iron itself out. The flaw was in the observations, as it sometimes is. And Pluto, as we discovered it was small, much smaller than we had anticipated, led us to believe that we would maybe find more objects out beyond Neptune. But for 48 years, there was only Pluto. It wasn't until 1978 that the second object beyond Neptune was discovered, and that was Pluto's giant moon, Charon. In other words, up until the 1990s, for more than 60 years, Pluto was the true ninth planet. It was the only major object beyond Neptune that was known. But in the 1990s, two big advances happened all at once that really started to make us question whether Pluto deserved to be in the same class as the four inner rocky worlds and the four outer gas giants. 
One advance was the discovery of exoplanets, worlds beyond our solar system, worlds that orbited stars other than our own. And the other was the explosion of trans-Neptunian objects, including worlds in the Kuiper Belt, the scattered disk, and possibly for the longest period objects, bodies that actually extended out to the Oort cloud. One of them Eris, one of these Kuiper Belt objects, was even more massive than Pluto. And in fact, we've determined that Neptune's giant moon Triton originated from the Kuiper Belt and is both larger and more massive than Pluto. So why would Pluto have this special planetary status if there are other objects like it that don't have planetary status, and furthermore, that there were other planets out there orbiting other stars that were clearly planets that had all the properties that Pluto didn't. It was a big problem that started to make us question whether Pluto truly deserved its status as a planet. It became very clear that the eight worlds in our solar system that we had called planets prior to 1930 had much more in common with one another than they did with Pluto. Pluto had more in common with these outer icy worlds than the rest of the planets. So what could we do? As it turned out, we had never officially defined planet in an astronomical context before. So in 2006, the International Astronomical Union made a definition, and they set up three criteria to do it. One, in order to be a planet, you have to be in hydrostatic equilibrium, which means you need to be massive enough to pull yourself into a sphere or a spheroidal object, only distorted by your rotation. It also, as the second criteria, had to orbit the sun and not any other object. So moons are out because they orbit their own planets. And finally, you have to be gravitationally dominant enough to clear your orbit. This means location is paramount in becoming an astronomical planet. And this also makes a clear delineation between being a planet and not being a planet. Now, you might recognize immediately that this definition has its flaws. For example, it only works around the sun, right? The second rule that the IAU came up with is that it must orbit the sun and not any other object. So immediately, anything you find around another star can't be a planet. But there's a potential solution to that as well. In 2015, astrophysicist Jean-Luc Margot made a definition that extends the IAU definition to planets around any star. It's a definition that's based on mass alone. You simply draw a line, and based on the age of your star, if you're above that line, if you're massive enough, orbiting your star enough times, you will clear your orbit. You will orbit the star you're orbiting and not any other object, and with enough mass, you will be in hydrostatic equilibrium. In other words, you don't need a spaceship to go there and determine whether an object is a planet. You can do that with observations and data you can take right here remotely on Earth from many light years away. 
But there's a flaw in this line of thinking, or at least this line of thinking isn't satisfying to everybody. Planetary scientists, people who study the geology, geophysics, origin, and atmospheres of these worlds, don't think that location should matter. They argue that there should be a geophysical definition of a planet, that it shouldn't matter what you orbit, where you are, or what else is happening in your orbit, or if you're even in an orbit. They say that hydrostatic equilibrium alone should be enough to define planetary status. But astronomers will never agree with that. Location is important in astronomy. Location is what makes the inner rocky planet special. When you form a solar system, there is a soot line, which is to say when you're too close to the sun or your star, you're going to be burned. You're going to be engulfed by the star. You're going to be basically incinerated. Anything interior to the soot line at formation is too close to form into a planet. Similarly, the farther out you go, you'll eventually encounter a spot where it's cold enough that you can form ices. This is the frost line in a solar system. And not coincidentally, the frost line is the location of our asteroid belt. The planets inner to the frost line are not icy worlds. They are the rocky planets we know of. Beyond the frost line is where we get the gas giants. In other words, if you are interior to the frost line, you could be rocky or a gas giant and still be a planet. Exterior to the frost line, you could be a gas giant and still be a planet. But beyond the frost line, unless you're a gas giant, you won't meet that planetary criteria as defined by the IAU. You won't gravitationally clear your orbit, and you won't orbit the sun and not any other object in hydrostatic equilibrium and meet that planetary criteria. It simply won't happen because location is important in understanding the properties you form with as a planet. Why do astronomers need this dividing line between what we call a planet and what we don't call a planet? It's because these other classifications are fine for us. We can call something that's in hydrostatic equilibrium that doesn't meet these other criteria a dwarf planet if it's small but part of the asteroid belt or the Kuiper belt. We can call it a rogue planet if it's ejected from a solar system or never had a parent star to begin with like an orphan planet. We can call it a moon if it orbits an actual major planet but isn't its own true planet orbiting the sun and not any other object. This is how astronomers think of things in the context of the solar systems they're a part of. And you might argue, well, you say a dwarf planet, a rogue planet, an orphan planet, an ejected planet, they still have planet in the name. How can you say they're not a planet? And the answer is we do this all the time in astronomy. Think about what we call a star. We have white dwarf stars, neutron stars, brown dwarf stars, and in the far future, we'll have black dwarf stars. 
but none of these are true stars. In order to be truly considered a star in astronomy, you need to be fusing hydrogen into helium or something that happens at even higher temperatures in the core of your star. That's what makes you a true star. Anything else will have star in its name, perhaps, but won't actually be a star. Similarly, these other planets are not astronomical planets. They're astronomical objects of interest, and those who work with them will call them some type of qualifier planet, like rogue or dwarf or ice dwarf or ejected or orphan planet, but they will not achieve astronomical planet status. If we were to let Pluto in, by hydrostatic equilibrium, then we would let at least 102 additional known planets into our definition of planet in the solar system. And that's simply not how astronomers think of planets. But it is possible that there is another planet out there. It is possible that the solar system has, as Mike Brown and Constantine Batigan have named it, a true Planet Nine, about 200 times the distance that Earth is from the Sun. There is circumstantial evidence for another world out there, one about 10 times the mass of Earth that's very slowly orbiting the Sun. We have seen a series of about six distant objects that seem to have the same orbital parameters that are consistent with it all being perturbed by a single massive outer world. This meets the Margot criteria of being gravitationally dominant enough to clear its orbit, of orbiting the sun and not any other object, of being in hydrostatic equilibrium, and on being above that mathematical physical line between planet and non-planet. It's above that, that will make it a true planet nine. So it is possible that our solar system will in fact have a true astronomical ninth planet, but it won't be Pluto, at least not according to an astronomical definition. What does all of this mean for Pluto coming back to our once and former ninth planet? Does the fact that Pluto lives in the Kuiper Belt make it less special than if it were, say, the only such object out there if there were no Kuiper Belt out where Pluto is? Well, does the fact that Ceres isn't a standalone object but has a whole host of neighbors around it, does that make Ceres less special than if it were on its own? Does Saturn's moon Titan, with an atmosphere thicker than Earth's, become any less special in your eyes because it wasn't able to eat up Saturn's rings with its own gravity? Well, the answer to all of these questions, of course, is no. These objects are special based on their own merits, not because of what's going on around them. These objects are special intrinsically and interesting intrinsically. But that doesn't make them astronomical planets. In order to understand what it takes for astronomers, not planetary scientists, to recognize an object as a planet, it must be viewed in the context of not merely what it is, but also where it is. If you were to eject Earth from the solar system, would it cease to be a planet? I argue that it sure would. 
We could call it an ejected planet. We could call it a former planet. We could call it a newly orphaned planet. And its history and its composition wouldn't be any different or any less interesting. But it would no longer orbit the sun, it would no longer be gravitationally dominant enough to clear its orbit, and it would no longer exhibit the properties necessary to be considered an astronomical planet. It's not just what it is in astronomy, but also where it is that determines the nature of an object. The Starts With a Bang podcast and much of what we do here at Starts With a Bang is made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. Support us at patreon.com slash startswithabang. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above for making this all happen. Thanks to Ryan Schultz, Samir Kumar, Bakhtiar, Kathy Reese, Rob Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Richard Jousey, Igor Mitrofanov, Arthur F., Marcelo Barnaba, Jason Besanseni, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Roischuk, Pedro Texera, Danny, Denise Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Guy Jin, Bob Wilson, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Weller Tractor Salvage, Bill Murphy, Mark Armstrong, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Chris Shaw, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Joe McFarlane, Amira Sosnick, Rachel Merritt, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Jose Enrique, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Joe Latone, Philip Radilovic, DGE, John Seal, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks everyone for making this happen, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bye.